Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to the book of James. We're in a series that we've entitled Real Faith, Real Life. And uh, we've been in this series where we've been learning from J- uh, Jesus' younger half-brother, James. This, this younger half-brother who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus, who saw Jesus all, all, probably every single day of, of his young life and into adulthood. And, and what he's been teaching us is how to live a practical life, how to live a life that honors God in all that we say and do. And James hasn't held back any punches uh, with us. He knows that one of the great temptations for us as Christ followers is to talk a great game about our religiosity, to talk a great game about how spiritual we are, but in the end, uh, not allowing our walk to match our talk. And over these five uh, chapters that he's going to share with us, as he shared with the early church of his day, he wants to remind us that if we're going to talk about God, if we're going to talk about our salvation in Jesus Christ, if we're going to talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ, then if we want to do a good job of advertising that, if we want to see people brought into the kingdom as a result of our words, but also our example, then our walk has to match the talk. Our life has to be in step with the things that we say about it. And so over and over again, he's going to remind us of what a life in faith really looks like. Last week we learned that to be uh, one who has a good religion, a good outward expression of your faith, is to make sure that we guard our tongue, to make sure that in our conversation, in our compassion, and also in our conduct, that we live according to the scriptures. Now we learned the two steps of Christianity are to know the word and to do what it says. And what we're going to learn now over the course of the next three chapters is how in each of those scenarios we're called to live like Christ, not just talk about it. And so we come to a passage of scripture in James chapter 2 where we have to ask ourselves a question. It's the same question James was asking the people in his church uh, 2,000 years ago. And the question is very simple. Are you a snob? Are you a snob? Now I know some of you right now, you'd say, absolutely not. There's not an ounce of snobbery uh, in me whatsoever. And, And here's the problem. For us to see a snob, it's real easy to identify. I mean, it's crystal clear when you see someone acting in a snobbish manner. But let me ask you this morning, do you size people up? Do you look at people and put your value on people based on their appearance, their skin color, their age, their education, their status, their gender? Do you uh, size people up uh, based on what you think of them because of outward appearances? You see, one of the struggles with this issue, as he's going to call it, as partiality or favoritism or discrimination is, it's incredibly subtle. And yet, James is going to articulate this morning that it is a cancer that is within us. And like most cancers, we don't know we're living with it. It's far too subtle. We need a doctor. We need a physician to do special tests on us to determine if we have this cancer and where it finds itself, where it resides. And James, being this great physician, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts us in the the testing lab, and he begins to look at all manners of our lives. 
Are we a snob with regards to our mouths? Do we say things or do we discriminate with words, whether through ethnic slurs or through nationality jokes? Do we find ourselves as a snob in the heart? That maybe we don't talk about it, maybe we don't show it in outward expressions, but we think it. I'm better than them. I don't want those types of people in my church or in my neighborhood. I don't want to work or interact with them. And and, and God help me if one of my kids was to start dating one of them. You see, James is going to tell us that this subtle cancer is eroding our faith. It's eroding our ability to be able to see people as God does. With full respect and full honor. And as Christians to invite them and engage with them in loving fellowship as equals to the heirs of salvation that we find in Christ Jesus. Now, I forgot, I had another announcement, so let me stop here for a moment. The elders made a decision, I want to make you aware of it. Um, We're going to do parking a little different around here. If you have a car that is 2014 or older, we need you to start parking down at the jewel and here's why your car's got rust on it and it looks old and when people are driving by we're coming to the conclusion that when people drive down route 47 they want to see nice cars they want to see new cars we want people to know that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ then you're gonna get a nice new car and so if you're like the Badals driving around a jalopy we want to put that you're still welcome to be here we would never listen we would never God loves all people but if you could just park down the road I would greatly appreciate it how do you feel now you know okay Tim you're terrible at telling a joke like that it didn't work But what if I was being honest? What if I was telling you that's exactly what the elders thought? What would that say to you about how this church loves? What would that say to you about how God loves? You see, this issue of partiality, favoritism, discrimination is so subtle that sometimes we don't even know we have it. And it's something that impacts both the parishioner and pastor alike. Some years ago, I uh, was a part of a a conference. It wasn't a large conference, about 70 attendees in the conference, and it was set for pastors. And the job was, or the conference goal, was to teach pastors how to be better preachers. And I remember I went and and, uh, was looking forward to the conference, and the first thing that we did, we gathered in a big room, was to introduce ourselves. And one of the questions was, introduce where you are, where, who you are, and uh, how much education you have. Where did you go to college and all of that? And I'm hearing all these guys that are a part of it, and they're talking about their Masters of Divinities, and they're talking about their PhDs and all of that. And your pastor started gulping, because I got letters at the end of my name, uh, GED, okay? And I started to struggle. No, I've got a high school diploma, by the way. But, okay, I don't have any, uh, I don't have a diploma with regards to my Bible teaching. That may uh, make some of you upset, okay? And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh boy, how do I sell this thing? How do I, how do, I do it? And, and I remember saying, listen, I'm a bivocational pastor of a church in Sugar Grove. I've taken classes at Moody Bible Institute, but I don't have any formal degree and I'm thinking, okay, they're God's people. They will love me and everything. i got to tell you something. It was like a group of junior high girls. 
as soon as it was time to break up into breakout sessions, I was like a leper. Well, you don't want him. We don't, you know what? And when we would talk, I would give recommendations or thoughts, and they'd say, you know what? Because you don't have a degree, maybe you should be a little more quiet. You say, how could that happen? It happens all the time. It happens within our thing. Now, do I think they meant to be mean? No, it's okay. And after years of counseling, I'm able to talk again. Okay? But it happens. We are making assessments of people all the time. The human brain and the human heart is able to size people up by their outward appearances. And we size up whether they're going to be our friends, whether they're going to be our co-workers, whether they're going to be our employees. We size them up. Or do we want them as neighbors? We size people up all the time. And sometimes what we'll do is we'll just do it passively, where we'll just say, I'm just not going to interact with that person. I, I don't want to, and so I, won't, I don't have to. And if I don't have to, I won't. This is what James was talking about in James chapter 2. He addresses this issue that needs to be called out for what it is, a cancer to our souls. And if you think you can stay quiet about your discrimination, if you think you can stay quiet about your favoritism, and as long as you keep it in your heart, nobody will know. Remember, God knows. And remember that God will judge every careless word and every careless thought that we have. But I want you to also recognize that this is at the very framework and, and foundation of the heart of ministry because as people come to the church looking for the answer that is only found in Christ Jesus, if we discriminate, if we show favoritism, we will cause people to get up and walk away. One of the most uh, serious cases of that and most famous cases was told uh, by Muhammad Gandhi. He was thinking about becoming a Christian. He had read the Gospels and was moved uh, by them. He had, he had come to the conclusion that Christianity offered a solution to India's caste system of putting people in different categories. And he was looking for something that would revolutionize that thought, that would change that thought. And so he went to attend a church one Sunday. And as he walked into the church, he decided he wanted to go see the pastor and seek instruction on the way of salvation and the way that God would see people all as equal. But when he entered the church, which consisted primarily of white English people, the usher refused to give Gandhi a seat. They told him to go and worship with his own people. He left and never would enter a church again. He made this statement, if Christians have a caste system, I might as well just remain a Hindu. We have to ask the question this morning. Are we showing favoritism? Are we showing discrimination as a people, as individuals? And then we have to ask the question, is it happening within the church? This is the tragic story that illustrates what James is telling us in our text. And so this morning, we have to ask the question, is this something I need to deal with? And if so, how is God going to remedy it so that I can see people through the eyes of God and not my own. Let's look to our text this morning. Uh, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab the pew Bible and the pew rack in front of you, and you can find our passage starting on page 1011. Page 1011. Here's what James says. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the man who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or, or, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall, not, you shall love your neighbor as yourselves. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and aren't convicted by the law as a transgressor. Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father God, I ask this morning that you would cause in our hearts to be grieved enough with this sin and ask of ourselves and of our church, is there discrimination? Is there partiality? Is there favoritism in my life? Am I unduly, Lord, looking at people through a lens by which you remind us not to? Lord, your example is that you are a respecter of no persons, that you look to the inside of a man, not the outside. And yet, Lord, we use the externals over and over again to size up individuals into a set of systems and levels that are unbiblical and quite frankly, as James says, evil. So Lord, I pray that you would help to exercise this cancer from our lives and that we would recognize and see the subtleness of its nature and the impact that it has on our world and our testimony. We love you and give you the praise for it all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've got four points this morning that I want to move through quickly. I want us to look at a principle that we need to remember. I want us to look at a problem that we need to recognize. I then want to look at a perspective that we need to retain. And then finally, I want us to have a practice that we will render. That's where I want to go, and let's hit each of them, and I'll send you off, hopefully, like I said, by 4 o'clock. Here's the first one. We need to have a principle to remember. James right away in chapter 2, verse 1, on the heels. Remember, there's no chapter breaks from James 1 to James 2. This is one long letter that James is writing. So on the heels of telling people, watch what you say in your conversation. Show compassion to the poor, especially the widows and orphans in their distress. And remain unstained by the world. One of the ways that we can be stained is to look at people differently than how God calls us to look at them. And right off the bat, he says, here's my goal for you, church. Don't show partiality when it comes to people. He wants to declare once and for all that 
all of us within the church are the same. We're all the same. We come from the the same uh, backgrounds. We come from uh, a place that we need to recognize that in God's eyes, not one of us is better than the other. And what he's going to articulate is, is that once we recognize our equality under God, then our relationship and our fellowship will grow exponentially. So he says two things within this principle, not to show partiality. First of all, it means don't discriminate against people. Don't discriminate against people. When we talk about what it means to be a snob, what we're talking about is someone who has an exaggerated respect for high social status or position or wealth, and in turn seeks to associate with social superiors, and therefore dislikes people or activities that would be regarded as some sense of a lower class. Now maybe you know of someone that thinks that way. Maybe someone in your life acts that way. But have you ever put yourself in front of the mirror and asked, might I be that person? Might I not even know that I'm experiencing or sharing or revealing these types of actions or thoughts or words that might discriminate? You see, you could look at it both in the positive and the negative. On the positive side of it, we would call it favoritism. It's discrimination, but it's favoritism. It's the positive end of the spectrum. And that is the idea of of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or one group at the expense of another. Because of something someone does, you give them a promotion. Or something that someone, I'm sorry, not does, but, but wears or, or looks like or, or something. They may not deserve the promotion, but you like them. Uh, they're, ki- they're like you in some way. I'm going to give them the promotion outside of someone else because they're different than me. Or because maybe they don't have all this other individual has. We need to be careful in that respect. The second side of it is the negative side. Favoritism on one side, discrimination on the other. That is the unjust or prejudicial treatment of different categories of people. And so we see that it's unjust. Now the question we have to ask is, whether we put it in a negative or a positive side on this, we need to recognize that sizing people up based on the externals is a sin. James is going to say he's not okay with it. God's not okay with it. And within the life of a Christian, James is going to call this act evil. It is against the heart and mind of God. And it cannot find its place in a spiritually healthy church. Now here's the reason. At the core of it all, you and I are equal. We need to recognize we came from the same earthly parents, right? Adam and Eve started it all, and and we come from the same lineage, even though that family tree is awful big right now, with billions of, of limbs a part of it, we're a part of the same family. We need to recognize that we were created and knitted together by the same God. And He's a creative God, and He gives different colors and different nationalities and different ethnic bents to different people. Why? Because he didn't want to just create a bland group of people. He wanted a colorful group. He wanted a group that was going to reflect more of his nature and of his glory. We need to recognize that we were loved by the same Savior. When the Bible says, for God so loved the world, he didn't say, and for God so loved the white world, or God so loved the black world, or God loved uh, the rich. For God loved the poor world. No, he said, for God so loved 
the world. All of the world. He shows grace and He shows mercy to all of us, not based on gender, not based on, on class, not based on race. He loves all of us. Heaven is going to be a place filled with all tribes, tongues, and nations. Finally, the Holy Spirit resides all of us. The same Spirit that's in me is in my African-American brothers. The same uh, Spirit that is in them is found in their Asian brothers. We have the same Spirit of God living in us, residing in us, and because of that, God is no respecter of persons, and neither should we. So here's the problem. We want to show somebody some respect. We want to show somebody some honor. And so maybe today you, you really feel like, well, somebody, we can't all be equal and someone needs to be uh, better than us. Someone needs to be uh, put on a higher spectrum or scale. And notice what James says. James says, if you want to show partiality, if you want to show favoritism, then here's who I think you should show it to. Notice in verse 1 he says, hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now listen, that's James's older brother. And James says, listen, this isn't my older brother. This is the king of glory. And if you want to show respect, if you want to show honor, if you want to show favoritism to someone, then show deference to Jesus. Show deference to Jesus. If someone's going to get the best seat in the house, if someone's going to get all the accolades, if someone's going to get all of the honor, then let's make sure at Village Bible Church it's Jesus, not one of us. Let us be very careful that we don't elevate others to the place that only Jesus should have. In this place, the only person who should get the applause, the only person who should get the, the headlines is Jesus Christ. And so James says, listen, partiality is an issue, and if you really want to be partial to sort someone, be partial to the King of glory. He deserves it. It's at His name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that my brother, he says, is Lord. Show deference to Jesus. Now that moves us then, now that we recognize we're equal, and the only person we're not equal to is Jesus, so let's elevate high the name of Jesus. Let's devalue who we are, because in comparison to the King of glory, you and I are welfare cases. Even the richest among us has nothing in comparison to Jesus Christ. We are all poor based on the riches of God which is found in Christ Jesus. So show deference to Him. Now notice, James says, but we've got a problem. Notice the problem we have to recognize. This problem of partiality, he illustrates it. Notice what he says. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Let's stop there. Now the question is, is James making this up? One of the things we need to recognize is this is probably not a theoretical situation nor a hypothetical one, but this is probably a real and true uh, situation. In fact, the reason why I believe it is true is in the Greek when it says show no partiality, literally in the Greek it would have meant in verse 1, stop showing partiality. 
He's calling out the church and say, stop doing this. So it is my impression that James has heard about a situation, probably this very situation, in one of the churches, and he's writing numerous churches that are scattered abroad, and he says, listen, I got a report that one of our churches did the following. Stop doing that. Stop showing that kind of division. Stop showing that kind of deference when it comes to people based on external things. Now notice, what's the situation? We learned that the situation has to do with the ushers of the church. If you've ever wondered why does the church have ushers? Because in the first century, there was a need to put people into spaces. It would seem that the assembly, that word literally comes from the Greek word for our term synagogue, and so this is early within the church when they still met on Sundays within the very synagogues that the Jews would use on Saturday. The place must have been full. Because we're going to learn there's standing room only, and there's only so many places for a person to sit. And so the sky comes in, and he looks great off the cover of GQ. And he walks in, he's wearing a nice suit. Man, he's even got those French cuffs. He's got a beautiful watch on. The, the word makes mention of a gold ring. I mean, this guy has every uh, uh, allowance given in his wardrobe that speaks, in some ways even shouts, I'm a person of means. Now, in the early church, what would happen is this would be an uncommon experience. In the New Testament church, the poor were some of the first believers in Jesus Christ. It was the slaves of the house who had bought into uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and had bowed the knee to Jesus. But we recognize that even Jesus had some interactions with the rich, some positive and some negative. Some who were unwilling to give up of their riches and walked away disappointed because they wanted to follow Jesus but were unwilling to make their riches a secondary issue, not a primary one. And so this rich man walks in with all of the adornments of, I'm a person of means, and the ushers jump to action. Well, hello, sir. Here's a place right up front, and it speaks of giving him a place of, uh, of specialness, if you will. It speaks of a place that you would sit him in a good place. That's not a good translation, in a good place. What it literally meant was the place of honor with the article the. This was the best seat in the house. Uh, this was what we called the rabbi's seats. This was where the Pharisees would sit as they presided over the worship service. And so they're ushering him in and the full house, and they may have even moved people out of the way so that this fine-looking man could have a seat. Then another individual comes in. And we are told that within this situation, a second person comes in, and he is not so magnificently dressed. He's one who is in shabby clothes. That word shabby literally means in the Greek, he came straight from work. And when you talk about coming straight from work, you're talking about an agrarian society of a man who probably worked multiple shifts, and wanting to be with God's people after being in the flocks with the flocks or being out in the field, he comes in, he's dusty, he's dirty, he's probably smelly. And he walks in and the others say, okay, 
Well, we gave the best seat of the house to the rich guy. Now to this poor guy, hey, you know what? Why don't you stand in the back? It doesn't tell us why they do it. It doesn't give us the motive to the crime. We just get the outcome. Hey, why don't you sit in the back? Or if you don't want to, I'm sorry, stand in the back, why don't you sit at my feet? The idea of sitting at one's feet was to put someone subject to another's place or role. You're lesser than us. We're not going to give you a place in the assembly. And if you really want to be with us, then put yourself at our feet and then you can be a part of the worship service. And notice what it says in the text. They pay attention not to all in the congregation, but to the rich. What would you think is that if you enter into the church or exit the church, I was to size you up based on what you bring home in a paycheck. That as I wa- people are walking out, I turn away from you, maybe who don't make a certain amount of money, and turn to those, oh, hey, you, Mr. So-and-so, Miss So-and-so, I know you make a lot of money. I know you're Mr. or Mrs. Important. How might you feel as I turn my back to you and give all my deference to a person based completely on something that God says we should not? You're going to be brokenhearted. Put yourself in that man's situation. This is a sin. They're separating two men based on what they wear. The sin is a faulty view of God's judgment. You see, little did the ushers know that they were showing zero compassion to their brother in shabby clothes. And so putting yourselves in their situation, maybe you were sitting there, maybe you were the poor guy, or let's say we're just an innocent bystander to all of this, and we watch this unfold. What would our understanding of God have been? Maybe you're sitting there and you concluded that God likes the rich guy because God has blessed the rich man with lots of resources. So if I'm rich, therefore, I'm good in God's eyes because that's what the ushers are telling this rich man. You're more important. You're of of greater value because you're rich. And maybe that's how God looks at individuals. Second i got to think that if the church judges people in this way, might God judge people the same way? Might I be in trouble of my eternal destiny because I find myself poor and destitute in this world? Might I find myself as something less than what the rich are because I don't make the money, I don't have the adornments that they do, I don't have the means to buy the type of clothing or cars or homes? You see, this was a problem that the church had early on. It was alive and well in the culture of James's day. It was manifested in racism between the Jews and the Gentiles. It was seen in sexism that would continually push down the value of women. It was seen in the slave master society. It was seen in the rich and poor, the educated and the non-educated. And you would think, but we're evolved. We are so much better than we used to be. But let us be reminded that it was just a generation ago that half of our country lived under segregation. Half of our country lived under Jim Crow laws. Even today, crimes are done because people are different than us. We look at situations different. 
If a murder happens somewhere in the suburban area, all manner of media blitzes to that place to talk about the story and the person who has lost their life. But we give zero regard to the dozens of people that will be mowed down in Chicago in the ghettos this weekend. Don't tell me that we don't struggle with discrimination. Don't tell me that we don't struggle with favoritism because then I am very different than you. Because at times I give little regard for individuals. We do it with our patriotism. Oh, I think it is very important. I love the United States. I believe it is one of the greatest countries on the face of the earth. But when we elevate our patriotism that an American's life is of greater value, of greater worth than anyone else, when we look and turn our eyes to bombs being dropped on people and say we hope they learn their lesson, we have devalued the value of an individual because they are not of the same country. They are not of the same creed as maybe we are. And we're showing discrimination. We're showing a favoritism that, Paul, that James says is wrong. Notice he hits it right on the head. He says, listen, when you do this, when you think this way, when you feel this way, you are judging that individual with evil thoughts. Now, here's a, uh, a rabbit trail just for a moment. What James isn't saying is that we can never judge. Just don't judge with evil thoughts. Don't judge with evil intentions. Don't judge in a way that God wouldn't. We are called to use discernment. We are called to use judgment. And that's right and good. That's wisdom. But when we judge with wrong motives and with evil thoughts, we sin against God. And so what does He want us to know? He says there's a perspective to retain. There's a perspective to retain. Verse 5, he says, listen, my beloved brothers. I think that's important because when James speaks and when this letter is being written, it's not being read just to the rich, but to the poor. It's not just being read to the master, but also the slave. It's not just being read to men, but also women. Not just the old, but the young. Not just the Jew, but the Gentile. Not just the educated, but the unschooled. And he articulates, listen. Not only do I want you to hear my words, but I want you to see my example. You are my beloved brothers. Every one of you, no matter where you're at, no matter how much money you have in your bank account, no matter what your nation of origin is, no matter uh, how smart you are or what kind of job you have, you are my brothers. The pastoral heart is a heart of equality with regards to His love. I love you all. I want to serve you all. I want to minister to you all. I want you to know God loves you all. He models Christ's likeness. And he says, listen. When he says listen, you should underline that in your Bible. That means this is something important. This is of great importance. And what he's telling us, he's going to in the next couple verses, teach us to know the Word. And he's hoping that by verse 12 and 13, you'll do what the Word says. So let me give you some things we need to know about favoritism or partiality or discrimination that we need to recognize from the Scriptures what James says and how it should impact how we act and how we speak. First of all, favoritism or, or discrimination is incompatible. It's incompatible with our church's calling. 
James says, listen, you can't do this. Well, why? Because it goes against your mission statement. It goes against why you exist. You see, for some of us, we think the church is a country club that we've joined. That we have made the cut, and because we've made the cut, we get to make the decision on who shows up to the church and who doesn't. If you were at the annual meeting on Friday, you heard me challenge you and our members in this. Open your hearts to all kinds of people in all kinds of places with all kinds of experiences. Show grace. Be magnanimous. Show love to all kinds of people. God is drawing all kinds of people to Village Bible Church. And we should be all the more open to welcoming them. And here's why. The church is not a country club. The church is a hospital. And we don't turn away patients. We don't check a patient's billfold before we start helping the operation. We don't ask uh, the background or the ethnicity of a patient before we start treating them. We believe at Village Bible Church and every healthy biblical church should believe that the people that come to them recognize one key truth, that they are a sinner in need of God's grace. And when we see people as sinners in need of God's grace, that is the only distinction that God wants us to have. Not based on wealth, not based on gender, not based on occupation, not based on, on social status. But every person who walks into this place in some way, shape, or form recognizes, I'm a sinner and I need help. I don't know what to do with my life. And so the church grabs them and embraces them and says, listen, we too were lost. We too were broken. We too were, were sinful. And by the grace of God, we've been redeemed. Come and get the treatment that you need. Come and get the medicine that you need that only Jesus Christ can prescribe. You see, when we live out something opposite of that, then we tell the world we're something that we really aren't. We're false advertising why the church exists. This is such an important thing within our membership commitment. You say, what's all this talk of membership commitment? In point three of our membership commitment, we say the following. I will strive to accept and fellowship with all members of the church, regardless of race, gender, background, social status, or level of education, since all are equal value in Christ. So listen, we cannot have, you know, I sure hope we don't get more of those types of people. We can't say that, you know what, that whole ethnic group, man, they just do things differently than us, and I would just rather they find their own service in their own place. God is doing a miracle at our Aurora campus. He's doing a miracle where in a, in a comprised church about five or seven years ago, almost completely white Anglo-Saxon individuals has now turned into a massive pool of diversity who worship different, who speak different languages, who come from different backgrounds and religions. And we're watching with great excitement in our heart because we are seeing what God is seeing is going to take place in heaven happening at our Aurora campus. People worshiping God, coming before God as sinners, 
looking for the remedy that comes in Christ Jesus alone. It is incompatible with our calling as a church. Number two, it's inconsistent with God's choices. Listen, if you're going to show favoritism, if you're going to show discrimination, that's fine. It's evil. It's a sin. But don't attach your name to God's name. Because God doesn't do that with people. Notice verse 5. He goes on and he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? The Bible tells us that God has bestowed his love on us because we're white. Right? That's what my Bible says, right? No. God shows His love to us because we all carry college diplomas, right? No, I hope not. God shows His love because we've got a certain level in our checking account. So I want you to all get on your, your internet banking and check how much money you got in your bank account because if you have less than this number, you're not loved by God. But man, if you have more than this, you are loved by God. No. God loves people. And He has chosen to love people not based on what they are or what skin color they are because they're sinners in need of grace. I'm reminded of this truth. Write this passage down. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Let us be reminded of how God called us. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, listen to his words, God chose that which was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being, not one, not the whites, not the rich, not the uh, socially uh, superior in status, none of them, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We got nothing. God didn't look at us like on a, on a playground and say, when I'm going to choose who's going to be saved, listen, I'm going to choose Badal, man. He brings a lot to the table. You're my first choice. No, God said, I... I choose Tim in his sin. I choose Tim in his debauchery. I choose Tim in his depravity. I choose him because he needs someone to love him. He needs someone to care for him. He needs someone to minister to him. Because if I don't, he'll never choose me. And so he shows his love. And so when you show discrimination towards a brother or a sister, you go against God. You do exactly the opposite of what God does in salvation. Notice thirdly, it's illogical given the conduct of the rich. Let me share a true story with you. I was in high school, and there was a group of popular kids that I really wanted to be a part of, and I wasn't alone. There were a lot of kids that wanted to be in this group. And the weird thing was, is this group was filled with some of the most mean people you would ever come into contact with. Why would anybody want to be with them? They were heartless at times, ruthless. They would betray people 
but they were popular and I wanted to be with them. And I didn't mind that, that, that I recognized that they probably were talking behind my back. I didn't mind it because, because popularity was the goal. I wanted to elevate my status, even if it meant I had to walk or climb over people to get higher and higher in the social status of the school. I was okay with it. And this is what's going on with the ushers. The ushers in James' situation are saying, the rich guy, man, he's got potential because maybe I can get a job with him. Maybe I can get some of his money. Maybe if I befriend him, my status will change, maybe within the church, maybe within the community. Now, let's give no regard to what the rich were doing. Notice in the text, he goes on and he says in verse 6 through 8, he says, listen, my beloved brothers, uh, let's see, verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? That's the first thing they do. Are they not, secondly, the ones who drag you into court? Thirdly, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? The rich were brutal to the church. And it didn't mean that the rich couldn't come to Jesus. It didn't mean that the rich were all bad people. But James says, listen, before you start cozying up to those who betray you, those who dishonor you, those who oppress you, those who drag you into court, think through what you're doing. Was it not Jesus who ministered to the poor? Was it not Jesus? You see, when we show favoritism or partiality, Jesus gets offended, and here's why. Because Jesus was poor. Because Jesus came from a backwater town called Nazareth. Remember what the phrase was? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus had a dad who wasn't all that well-known or well-liked, if you will. Is this not the carpenter's son? I mean, how serious can he be? How special can he be? His dad was just a carpenter. And so Jesus endured favoritism. Jesus endured partiality. Jesus endured discrimination based on his status, based on his location of where he lived, and based on his occupation. But I want you to recognize it was also based on his appearance. Isaiah 53 tells us that we did not esteem him because we were not awed by the way he looked. There was nothing about him that would esteem him to us. And so Jesus experienced this. He was wrongly judged. And the rich were the ones doing it. The higher-ups were doing this. And so Jesus tells uh, his disciples, and he shares this with James, and now James shares it with us. Be careful that you don't give preferential treatment to the very people that are thwarting the gospel. That if I become friends with this group of people, then my status rises. And if that means when they make fun or they discriminate against others, then I'm going to join in with them. It is illogical for us to do that. Notice it causes us to be indifferent to the commands of Jesus. He goes on and he says, listen, in verse 8, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. James brings up the royal law. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. To love our neighbor as ourselves. Listen, you cannot, write this down, you cannot live out the greatest commandment to love your neighbor as yourself and show favoritism and show discrimination towards a group of people. And here's why. Your neighbor isn't just the person you live next to at your home. Jesus reminds us and tells us one of the most famous of his stories, the story of the Good Samaritan, that everybody is our neighbor. 
We are called to love all human beings as if they live right next door to us. We're to love them as we love ourselves. And so we can never elevate one over the other. You cannot live out the great commandment and show favoritism. You cannot live out the great commandment and show uh, discrimination towards another. And here's why. Jesus over and over and over again models for us that that's not the case. He shows us both in word and deed. Notice what Jesus did. Jesus ministered to the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus ministered to the rich and the poor. Jesus ministered to the young and the old. He ministered to women and men. He ministered to the slaves and the masters. He, 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 he uh, ministered to the religious elites and the downright filthy. And He did so with love in His heart. And if Jesus did that, and if Jesus commanded us to do it, then the Christ follower in us should do that as well. And we can't be indifferent to the commands of Jesus. We can't say we love Jesus and hate His commands. Jesus said, if you love Me, you'll obey My commandments. And the one, the greatest one He gives, besides honoring and loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, is to love each other, no matter what we look like or what we have, as we love ourselves. This leads us to a practice that we must render. Verses 9 uh, through 11 says, we need to change our attitude. We need to change our attitude. Instead of judging, let's remember you and I will be judged. He reminds us that we need to be careful not to think that just because we're doing really, really well in all other situations, that because we show some favoritism, we're going to be okay. So James says, listen, if you obey the whole law but transgress one thing, you're a transgressor. Think of it this way. You go before the court, and you've, uh, let's say you have, uh, let's see here, you've stolen lots of money from your employer. And you stand before the judge, and the judge says, prove your innocence. And your response is, listen, I'm innocent of this case, of this crime, because I've never cheated on my wife. I've never killed anybody. I've never had a traffic violation. And the judge says, but wait a minute, we're not talking about that. That's great that you haven't broken the law in this way, but you're still a lawbreaker. You stole money from the company. But I'm not an adulterer, judge. It doesn't matter. You are a lawbreaker. You see, what we will do, and what the religious people of Jesus' day did, is that they sized themselves up, basing and checking off the list what I haven't done. I haven't done this, I haven't done this, I haven't done this. Oh, this one area, but who really... Really, does this one matter? And what James says is, unless you can cross everything off, You've broken the law in one area, you've broken it all. You're a transgressor. You're either innocent or you're guilty. Whether you're guilty by one or all, you're still guilty. And so he says, listen, recognize we are going to be judged for that. As Christians, we will not be judged on whether our eternal value or, I'm sorry, our eternal destiny is at stake. But we will be judged for how we live for Christ in the body at the judgment seat of Christ in heaven. And we need to recognize, instead of judging people, I need to grow my heart, I need to grow my mind to show mercy. Instead of thinking that I've kept the whole law, I need to recognize that in many ways I've broken it by failing in this one 
area. Our attitude needs to change. We need to recognize that you and I are sinners, like every other individual on this earth. And at the foot, or at the cross of Jesus, the footing is at the same level. We're all sinners, and we need redemption. This leads to an action, verses twelve through thirteen. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, for mercy triumphs over judgment. So now what are you going to do? You know the word. There's been a lot of know the word, know the word, know the word today. Now the question is, are you going to act differently? Are you going to speak differently as a result of what you've learned? Are you going to be careful with what you say about other people? Are you going to uh, stop and cease some of the random thoughts that you have about people based on their externals? James says, don't elevate people over others. Only Jesus should be elevated. You want to elevate someone? Elevate Jesus. The judgment day, we are either going to be judged based on judgment or based on mercy. What What James is telling us is when Jesus judges us, He's giving us an out. He's saying, you're a lawbreaker. But one way you can fix that, one way that you can remedy your judgment time before the Lord is to show mercy to people. And this isn't the only time in the Scriptures it talks about this, that with the same mercy we show others, God will show us. The same way we show judgment against others, God will use that same structure to judge others. I got to believe that every one of us wants mercy on the judgment day, not judgment, right? So what we're to do is to speak and to act with mercy, not judgment. Because God's perspective is mercy will always triumph over judgment. So what do we do? Write these three things down and we're closing this thing out. Number one, Romans 15.7. Romans 15.7 is a command for us to accept everyone. Do you have a big enough heart to accept everyone? We're commanded to. Number two, consider the needs of others. Consider the needs of others. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Don't look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. Accept everyone. Consider others' needs before yourself. And number three, affirm all people. Encourage them. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 We are to encourage one another. We are to affirm one another. We are to love one another. On the entrance of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago stands this motto, and I will close with it. Ever welcome to this house of God are the strangers, the destitute, and poor. Is that true of your heart this morning? That all are welcome? Is that true of our church? If we want to be a biblical church, if we want to be a healthy church, then we must ask this question continually. Do I love like Jesus does?